Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. Today I am speaking with Daryl Gray. He is a gastroenterologist currently practicing at The Ohio State University. He is an alumni of the Howard University College of Medicine and undergrad. And no, Morehouse for undergrad. More, huh? Morehouse man and, and the son of Howard. Dr. Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So, Dr. Gray, uh, t- let's let's get started with your day-to-day life as a gastroenterologist. Uh, what's a typical day or a week like for you? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things I love about my job and the roles in which I serve is uh, no day is typical. I mean, the only day that is somewhat typical is Tuesdays because that's my clinical day in which in the morning I'm doing procedures like upper endoscopies and colonoscopies. In the afternoon, I'm seeing patients uh, in the clinic. But the other days of the week, yeah, really kind of I'm wearing different hats, whether it's administrative roles for different leadership roles that I serve for our health system or our, or our cancer center or in ways across our health sciences colleges at our academic um, center. Or, you know, it's with research because I also do some research as well, some clinical research. So I get to wear multiple hats throughout the week. And that's, I think, really makes it fun for me. Um, and I really enjoy it day in and day out. How do you decide when you're making your contract as an academic clinician, how much of your time is spent as a gastroenterologist versus all the other things that you do? You know, great question. And that's, you know, it's it's kind of, um, it has to be something that's negotiated. And uh, when I came to Ohio State in August of 2014, prior to then, obviously, I was kind of negotiating what my time would look like. And for me, you know, I crafted a vision uh, for what I wanted to do within my gastroenterology division and also where, where I wanted to go with it, what kind of metrics I would hold myself to, things I would try to do as, as measures of success, and really presented that as part of, you know, to my um, division director as why I needed a certain amount of time to kind of craft relationships, to build a research portfolio, to get grant funding and things like that. So for me, it was a negotiation at, at the front end. Now, this is tailored to academic medicine. You know, private practice is, is, a different, is a different kind of model. And so, but for all those who are interested in going into kind of academic medicine, it's extremely important to know what you want and how you're going to try to get there and leverage those things to negotiate your time because salary is one thing. And yes, you should negotiate your salary. It's important. Leverage benchmarks whether it be Sullivan and Cotter rates or AAMC rates, you know, know, know what your what the benchmark is for your worth, if you will. But also you want to negotiate time because time in many ways is more valuable than money. Hmm. And I've, I've found that to be the case. So run that back. You said Sullivan and Carter? Sullivan and Cotter. You know, they're, they're different kind of agencies, if you will, that um, – or companies that publish different rates for kind of what is the average for, you know, in your example, anesthesiologist or a gastroenterologist. Uh, similarly, AMC does does that as well. And there are other places that kind of publish what benchmarks are for, you know, 
your region, where you live, um, what your seniority in your role, whether you're an assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. And so it's, it's important to become familiar with those things. That's good to know. I, I'd never heard of them before. So I'll definitely uh, yeah. take a peek and see how much I'm being underpaid. In the Navy. <laughs> Actually, I probably won't do that. <laughs> um, so when you came and we're going to get to your pedigree in a, in, yeah. a, in a bit, because it's quite impressive. But um, I'm guessing you came out of your GI or sorry, you came to Ohio State. Did you start out as an assistant professor? I did. So I actually came when I came, I didn't come straight out of fellowship. It was after fellowship, after GI fellowship at WashU, I um, did another fellowship at um, Harvard in particularly between their uh, School of Public Health and their School of Medicine. It's called the Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Minority Health Policy. And it was a one year fellowship. Uh, for physicians, uh, they accept approximately five physicians a year who come from different stages in their career. Some come straight out of residency. Some come after fellowship like I did. Others can come mid or early career. And uh, really, it's geared towards uh, developing skills and relationships uh, around um, health policy and management, but also around leadership. And so I did that and, and then started at Ohio State um, after I finished that program. So I started in August of 2014. Um, but I leveraged those skills in kind of what I do day in and day out um, through my multiple roles. Okay. And then coming to Ohio State, uh, the Ohio State, you, you came in as an assistant professor? <laughs> yes, I did. So I started as uh, assistant professor um, and was promoted in 2019 to associate professor. 2019. So what what exactly does that mean? So I know, I know a, lot, a lot of people you see, you know, they'll, they'll put on their mm -hmm. profile as professor or, or mm -hmm. assistant associate and medical students, uh, even residents don't. I didn't really know how it how the progression went until I was yeah. uh, first year into the attending the attending role. How do you become an assistant professor and what exactly does that mean? You know, um, that can be very different for different institutions. So it's fairly customary for Ohio State, as well as many other academic institutions, for new faculty to join as an assistant professor. And it's, you know, in academia, you have kind of ranks, and um, ranks can influence your salary, Um Ranks can influence, you know, what, how you're recognized, you know, not only at your institution, but certainly more broadly as you're, you, you know, you're building a portfolio of work. Um, and, but at other institutions, they may start you or you may be requested to start as what's called an instructor. Mm -hmm. But throughout academia, it's, it's kind of, you have a ranking system, so it goes from instructor to assistant professor to associate to full professor. And um, so many who choose to remain in academia throughout their career are aiming to be a full professor. Um, and again, it, there's for some, if they, they do what's called a tenure track, typically those are people who are scientists, in some way, maybe they're a full basic scientist or they're a physician scientist and they're going in the tenure track, which is really means kind of job security. Um, and others do the clinical track. But regardless, if you're remaining in academia, you're trying to get to be a full professor, which takes it takes time and it takes obviously work. Um, but it's recognition of your value. It's recognition of your body of work. And in some ways and at in some institutions, it can also influence and increase your salary. Hmm. 
in where I'm at, I'm an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the Uniform Services University of Health Science. And basically for me, all I had to do was fill out a request to become an assistant professor. And of course, the processing of that request took like six months to a year. So now I'm an assistant yeah. professor. And like you mentioned, it carries weight at di different institutions, but sometimes you can transfer from one to another and it's a lateral transfer or sometimes you get can get bumped up and kind of it all all depends oh yeah absolutely and the, and the process the length of the process like you mentioned can vary too i mean here you know the actual from the time when you kind of start submitting your papers here it can take it takes over a year you know for that kind of promotion to be confirmed close to two so yeah so what did you do as an assistant professor to um, become an associate? Well, you know, there's, you know, there's criteria and every institution will have, depending on where you go, they will have what they call PNT or promotion and tenure criteria that really gives you the rule book for that institution about what kind of benchmarks do you need to achieve to climb to the next rank. And they usually, depending on your pathway, because there are different pathways, there's, you know, at Ohio State, I'll go through the pathways. They have a kind of basic scientist pathway. They have a clinical scholar pathway. They have a clinical excellence pathway. Um, and so there's these different pathways that you can, depending on what your body of work is around, you can choose a pathway and then try to achieve those benchmarks. And so for me, going from assistant to associate, I was initially on the clinical excellence pathway, which means my body of work had basically to do with patients um, and patient care. And so for me, there were several things that I was doing, whether it was my community work that was getting patients to come into our center, that was improving access and utilization of colorectal cancer screening, mm -hmm. whether it was um, my publications, because uh, I was publishing in that same area and really doing... Uh, publications around engagement and colorectal cancer and diversity and inclusion and things like that. Um, or it was what I was doing as a leader in patient care, particularly as a medical, I was a medical director for one of our uh, GI service lines at one of the hospitals uh, for OSU and really helping to navigate people through what we had, what we called patient navigation models and kind of the success of that. So all of that all of that went into, in my teaching, you know, to students and fellows and residents, um, all of that went into my, what's called dossier, which is basically a portfolio that people have to read and, and decide whether you fulfill the criteria and are eligible for being promoted. So that was kind of my path to associate. And are you competing against your um, partners for promotion? Because I, from what I understand, no, it's kind of a pyramid. Yeah, no, the good thing is that it's not a competition. You know, it's it's if you meet the criteria and you put forth your dossier in a very well-organized fashion to kind of, you know, petition for yourself basically, it's no competition. If you're if you have all the criteria, you should be promoted. Gotcha. And then so if you had to kind of guesstimate in your GI department, how many yeah. full professors do you have? Or sorry, how many faculty members do you have roughly? Oh, we have about 35 faculty. And how many of those yep. are full professors? We have one, two, three. We have about mm, four or five professors, full professors. The majority are between assistant and associate. Gotcha. And then for those full professors, roughly how long would you say it takes to earn that rank? 
you know, that's that's very tough because some people move at um, some people fulfill the criteria at a more accelerated rate than others. You know, so, for example, from going from assistant to associate, you know, the average is between, you know, five and, you know, seven to eight years mm-hmm. um, before you achieve that rank. Um, I, I was blessed in that I kind of fulfilled the criteria early. And so, you know, I was putting in my my paperwork between my third and fourth year oh, wow. um, and was ultimately pr- promoted, you know, right at the start of my right before the start of my fifth year. So, um, yeah, but it can I mean, it, it takes time between each of those kind of ranks, if you will. Yeah. And then for your promotion, like part of what was in your package, right, was your um, additional degree from Harvard Public Health. Right. So you kind of get credit for for that. Yeah. Well, you know what? For a promotion, once you're at the institution, they only count what you've done there. Um, so, you know, in, in a lot of academic institutions, only what you've done while at that institution will matter towards promotion. Wow. That's good. To, yeah. And I guess you have to get to your institution and, and figure out how the, yeah. how the system works. Um, and then when it comes to you've done the stuff in the, the dossier, you're you're mm-hmm. ready to promote you're submitting your package. Are you submitting your package to the department and then they're going to kind of look it over and and say yes or no, or is it guaranteed? Yeah. So you, you do, you submit it to your department. Uh, It goes through kind of several levels of review. And then from the department, it goes to kind of the college, you know, meaning the college and most, if you're at academic center, you might have a college of medicine, for example, it goes to the Dean of the college of medicine and they review it as well. And you also, a lot of times, will have an external reviewer. So you, in your packet, you'll identify leaders in the field that you kind of align with the track that you're submitting for. So maybe you're an expert in, I'm going to use the colon cancer example, maybe you're an expert in colon cancer and, uh, and so, and maybe you're on the clinical excellence or clinical scholar pathway. Well, you're going to identify leaders across the nation um, who are experts in the field, who are more senior to you. And those people have to also review your application and comment on your eligibility and fulfillment of the criteria. So once all of that is done, it kind of comes back to the college and the college can give a stamp of yes. College can give a stamp of no, not yet. Um, and so that's how it typically goes. Yeah. And as we know, um, you know, there is diversity lacking at every stage in the healthcare workforce. From the 2018 AAMC data, the percentage of full-time U.S. medical school faculty by race and ethnicity has uh, Black or African Americans weighing in at um, under four percent. Yep. Um, when you start to stratify that between clinical associate, uh, assistant professor, associate professor, and professor, that it you know the stratification gets even thinner the, the exactly. higher up you go. So what is the significance of diversity in academic promotion? I mean, it's big. It, it, it's big because, like you mentioned, there's such a lack of diversity as you climb the, the pipeline, if you will. And so it's, it's, you know, when you see a black male who is a full professor, you see a black female who's a full professor and dean or a chair of a department, you're kind of seeing a unicorn, right? Be- because it's just it's not common. And so that also means that that we as a community of 
clinicians, scholars, those working in academic medicine, we have to support our colleagues who are from underrepresented medicine backgrounds. And so whether that's through mentorship, whether that's sponsorship, whether that's recruiting, whether that's when they come into the, the academic health center, we are supporting them and not necessarily taxing them too much. You know, minority tax of having the burden of doing all the diversity and inclusion efforts or right. um, recruiting the next uh, wave of talent um, that we have supports in place and, and they feel included in the culture and that we're doing our best to make sure that they are advancing and succeeding in that environment. Because from what I understand, it's it's a bit cyclical in the fact that whoever is the professors have a bit more say in who gets promoted. Would you say? Well, a lot of times it's it's that that is the case because maybe the professors are on the PNT committee, the Promotion and Tenure Committee. So the the Promotion and Tenure Committee does tend to have more full professors than those who are assistant or associate. And so by virtue of that, I would say yes. Um, but most of the, in my experience and that of my colleagues, you know, people who are, those on the committee aren't necessarily looking to not promote someone who fulfills the criteria. They're really hoping to promote and advance them. So looking for ways to get them across the finish line, uh, if you will. And, and so the majority of people particularly at the Ohio State, who are submitting their dossier for promotion are getting promoted. It is the okay. minority that's not. Yeah, that's good. That's good to know. Um, but as as always, you know, representation matters at every Absolutely. single stage in the process, uh, which brings us to the other question, right? Because there is that um, black tax or you have to hold it down for your people. But yeah. academic medicine is not for everybody. Right. Right. No, you, I, I agree. It's not for everybody. I mean, when you go into academic medicine, you have made a decision and you have ex you are expressing that your vision for your career, or at least in the short term, is that you are going to be part of a tripartite mission. And that is usually around patient care, education and research. Um, so you are going to really lead in those kind of three domains. Um, now, if you are a clinician, physician, who really just wants to focus on um, patient care, then acad academia may not be for you. Um, certainly there are, as I think about the field of gastroenterology, um, you know, if you go into private practice gastroenterology, the salary difference is significant. So if you don't, if you don't have any aspirations to kind of train the next generation of gastroenterologists, or you don't have any aspirations to do research or lead to new discoveries or answering, you know, tough questions, uh, publishing papers, things like that, um, then you may want to be in private practice then because you <laughs> will, it's a lot more lucrative uh, than academia. Yeah. And I've heard it kind of broken down or explained as well as, um, you know, how much impact, right? Because you can have an incredible impact on your individual patients' lives as yeah. a fantastic private practice clinician or as an academic clinician, but then mm -hmm. in academia or even private practice, if you work with medical students, residents, fellows, you have that ability to kind of impact their careers and have them go out and do more. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's, it's just, you know, whatever your vision is, that's, that's what can help dictate uh, which step you take, whether you're going to academia or private practice. 
and, and part of that, especially watching your career as an associate professor, you know, I mean, you're lecturing across the, the country. You recently gave grand rounds at uh, Duke and at UNC. I, I watched the Duke grand rounds. Fantastic. And you're able to put your message out there um, and highlight those key fields that may be otherwise missed. Uh, thank you. Yes, I, I've been I've been very blessed to to be able to be in, you know, the circles where I can, you know, be viewed as a leader in this area around equity, um, diversity and inclusion and really bring a lens that it will hopefully help, you know, health systems and individual programs, departments of medicine, divisions of gastroenterology, you know, do better in taking care of not only their patients, but taking care of the communities in which those patients live. And because I strongly believe we have to reach beyond our walls if we really want to have impact, because there's no use in us continuing to be repair shops as health centers and health systems. Um, we have to work on preventing people from coming into the repair shop. And, and I think, too, we have to create you know, a workforce that reflects America. And right now the the face of healthcare does not look like the face of America. And so, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm trying to preach that gospel um, and have been fortunate to be invited at, you know, multiple academic health centers across the nation to, to do so. Yeah. It's a huge, huge impact. Um, so let's, let's go back a little bit in time. Uh, when did you decide you wanted to become a physician? You know, it actually goes back to my early childhood. Uh, I was fortunate. My dad uh, practiced medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, inner city Baltimore, Maryland, and he did private practice internal medicine. So he's kind of like your routine uh, family doc. And, you know, at the time, um, I could just be in the office with him. And so I got to see, you know, the relationships he built with patients, both in the clinic, but outside of it, and the, the impact he had on people's lives in times of both illness, but also when they were doing quite well. And the rapport he had with the community, it was it was amazing. And so, you know, at an early age, I decided I wanted to be like that. And uh, but it was through experiences, you know, whether it be the sciences at, at Morehouse, whether it be, you know, the opportunities I had when I was at Howard University College of Medicine that continued to to foster and build upon that um, and turn that kind of initial spark into really a passion and, and uh, a calling, I think. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, and and you transitioned through Morehouse, through Howard, you know, so two fantastic HBCUs. What did you gain from those institutions? I think, you know, as I reflect on my HBCU experience and, you know, a lot of critics will say, you know, it doesn't prepare you for the real world. But in my case, it definitely did. Um, you know, going to Morehouse, uh, especially thinking that, that is my first experience outside of high school, particularly at HBCU. You know, there was, you know, uh, no real imposter syndrome. And, and I learned that I can be, you know, a leader in any room through my experience at, at uh, Morehouse. And, hmm. you know, I found myself while I was in Morehouse, um, I was invited with some other scholars to travel to to Dublin, Ireland and uh, be amongst uh, many of the world leaders at the time. And experiences like that really stuck with me that, you know, I'm, I'm in the room for a reason. Um, and uh, I was invited for a reason and that has helped me as I've traversed training and now on faculty and really in boardrooms with senior leadership for the hospital or working with organizations in the community that, you know, I'm there for a reason. And, and I think that Morehouse and certainly Howard as well prepared me 
for for this moment and prepared me um, for you know how to handle tough situations, how to uh, represent myself and others uh, when I'm the only one in the room who looks like me, um, and to feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, man. And then you transitioned from your HBCU to a PWI and yeah. actually to Duke University, which is, you know, down south. How was that yep. transition? It's, you know, it was good. It was, it was actually what I was looking for um, when I was it was my first choice for residency. At the time, I actually thought I wanted to be a cardiologist, funny enough. And um, it, it I wanted a larger hospital than than Howard and I wanted a busier experience and that's what I, that's what I got when I went to Duke. It was extremely busy working hard. Um, and uh, kind of, uh, the pathology there, meaning, you know, the different diseases I would see as a trainee, um, it was quite the learning experience, but again, I felt extremely prepared for my experience, for my experience at Howard. And, um, you know, I, I felt, I felt ready. I also, you know, I had peers, you know, I did feel supported in that environment because I had peers who did look like me and were shared a similar lived experience. And so I felt like even in a predominantly white institution, I, I also had a kind of a family, if you will, um, and built an even larger family by through my kind of co-residents and the leadership who embraced me um, at, while I was at Duke. It's awesome. And from Duke, you went on to Washington University for your gastroenterology fellowship before continuing on to the Harvard School of Public Health. What did you take away from the Harvard School of Public Health? And what would you say to folks considering that field? You know, it was I took a lot of things away. I mean, first, just to reflect on, you know, being at Harvard, um, you know, and being at a place that just has vast resources um, is certainly a stark contrast from my experience at um, HBCUs in that sense. And and this is a shameless plug that we need to continue to donate and give back to our HBCUs. Uh, when I was at Harvard, you know, it, literally every week there would be somebody coming in from out the country, some prince, some leader, some, you know, president of some Fortune 500 company, you know, somebody coming in to talk. It was, it was you know, it was just that kind of rich of an experience um, to be able to learn from different, you know, leaders. I, I think, too, um, I, I gained, you know, a network that is just invaluable. Um, that fellowship that I did there, that is kind of the jewel of the fellowship is, is the network. I mean, the physicians that come out of that program serve in every sector you can think of, from from government leadership to, you know, private business to, healthcare system leadership, um, and so, and even more. And so having that network and really learning skills on how to lead and how to be a great leader and how to interpret policy and how to even craft policy, how to speak the language of policymakers, um, was extremely invaluable, particularly for me as someone who, um, does, kind of walk the line of, of being a physician, of being an academician, of being someone who interacts with um, local and state um, policymakers. Um, so I, I found it to be incredibly invaluable. Yeah, that's amazing. But yeah, that's that's the pedigree, man. It's it's impressive looking at it on paper from Morehouse <laughs> to Howard to Duke to Wash U to, to Harvard and to the Ohio State. Man, it's it's um, it's it's God. You know, I, I I've been incredibly blessed, and 
you know, I just strive to stay connected uh, to him and, you know, follow the calling and the, the role he's put me in, you know, on this earth. And, you know, certainly credit to my parents who helped to, to get me to this point and set me up for success. Um, certainly I'm putting in a lot of hard work, but I can't do it without a support system. I certainly can't do it without God. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been, for me, it's been invaluable to have that support, especially now, you know, my, my closest support is my wife and family. And so they, they helped me to excel. Um, I would not be excelling like I am now without them. So it's been an incredible journey. That's awesome. Um, you know, as, as we wrap up, I know you got your hands in a lot of pots. I know you're giving back in, in many, many different ways. But one of those ways is through this organization, ETSS. Could you tell us more yes. about that? Yes. Um, ETSS is a, and the longer, that's an acronym for Ethiopian Tawahado Social Services. It's a or, nonprofit organization based in Columbus. Uh, that helps new Americans, so immigrants and refugees, become self-sufficient. And it's through adult programming, whether it be job readiness, whether it be English as a second language, whether it's you know mental health services or violence prevention, or whether it's youth programs um, to kind of support the youth through whether it's after-school programs and other types of innovative methods to engage our new American community and really support them and help them to become the leaders uh, that they want to be and and maybe even in some cases have been in their home country. And so for us, it's been extremely fulfilling work. Uh, I've I've been on the board for a few now, three years um, now of the organization. And if people want to support, they can check out the website. It's ethioss.org for ETSS or Ethiopian Tawato Social Services. And I encourage people to learn more. It's, It's really an exciting organization. That's awesome. And we'll definitely put the link to that in the show notes. Dr. Gray, thanks for joining us. If people want to find out more about you, track your progress, read um, one of your exhaustive list of uh, publications, <laughs> uh, where do they find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter or Instagram at DMGray, G-R-A-Y-M-D. Um, or you can, you know, if you and this sounds weird, but you can just type in my name in Google and, and some of the publications or some of the the uh, accolades from, from work. I get to partner with amazing people across the nation on. Um, you'll find me. Ain't tricking if you got it. <laughs> no, I'm not <laughs> trying to post like that. <laughs> oh, man, Dr. Gray, thank you so much, my fellow uh, uh, Howard brother. Thank you, brother. It's been a pleasure. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen.